Hey guys, how you doing? Welcome back to the Noel Castler podcast. Episode 33 is in effect. I'm back here with my main man, Jimmy Kennedy. Jimmy is rocking his Sunday hair this morning for you folks watching on YouTube. Getting ready for some football today, Jimmy? Yeah, uh, easy like Sunday morning, man. They got the, uh, the roof open at Lucas Oil Stadium. It's going to be like 50 degrees today. And, uh, you know, Mr. Ursay is saving on air conditioning, but people are probably going to have to bring a jacket, you know. That's, wow, that's... yeah. Well, I guess that <laughs> cold weather's heading our way because it was 80. Yeah. It was 81 on Friday. It was probably, you know, high 70s yesterday. And uh, it's it's nice out today, but uh, it's global warming. You know, it's terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Peyton Manning had input on where, like, the sun would come in because, you know, he would run a no-huddle offense. And like the sun would get in his eyes. So he was part of the design team as far as like where the sun would come in. And depending on what side of the stadium you're on, you'll be sweating or be freezing because the sun's just bearing down on you. That's so, all. I, I think I remember hearing about that. I think it also yeah. affects the opposing team, right? Because then they're passing with the sun in their eyes and stuff. When Peyton came back with the Denver Broncos, I was with the Colts uh, as an intern and we opened the roof for a night game to try to make Peyton uncomfortable. And it worked. It was, it was enough to, to make a difference. So, well, yeah. we'll get into the NFL a little more later on in the show. Obviously there's some stuff going on there this week, but uh, I want to start off top of the show. Uh, a guy I got to know a little bit, Ron Tut, who was Elvis's drummer. He was Jerry Garcia's drummer. He was just a legendary drummer. He passed away on Saturday and uh, just an amazing guy. I got to work with him when he was with Neil Diamond. I've told that story before about Neil Diamond and the 4th of July in Boston at the Boston Pops. And at the end of that gig, you know, after two days of like trying to get stories out of Ron about playing with Jerry Garcia band and everything, he uh, gave me his drumsticks after mm -hmm. the gig. And they're sitting on my drum kit right now, man. I've used them for 10 years or more that he gave them to me and I'm always you know I always look at his little signature and the guy was a legend you know your, your father certainly would have been a fan of I'm sure was a big fan of Ron Tut so uh you know part of that greatest generation of musicians and we're losing too many of it rest in peace Ron Tut yeah absolutely man I and mean, I I saw that tweet about the drumstick you know I still got my chooch uh guitar pick you know that's the beauty of music man you can get you know, the former instruments and allow them to channel the, the people that we miss. That's the beautiful thing about music that I love. Exactly. 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 It lives on in spirit. You know, that's what you're all trying right. communicating is spirit. And thinking of that or speaking of that, I'm going to be playing at the Wall Street Theater in Norwalk, Connecticut on November 18th. I'm really looking forward to this gig. It's an amazing theater. And as a matter of fact, speaking of spirit, Mavis Staples is playing there next Friday. Now, <laughs> I have no business being on a stage that Mavis Stapled had just graced a couple of weeks prior, but that's the way uh, that's the way it worked out. And Mavis is a hero of mine. I mean, I got her biography is within arm's reach here. I've seen her perform a bunch of times. It doesn't get any better. So if you're listening to this, you know, plan on coming to see my show on November 18th, but also plan on checking out some Mavis Staples when you get a chance. And because uh, it does not get better. And, you know, pop staples, the staple singers, I mean, the backbone of, of, of sort of not just soul music, but really conscious raising, consciousness raising music is a great film of a show they did in Africa. If you ever get a chance to see it, it's just mind blowing. And, uh, you know, Mavis grew up 
her, her, her local church, her preacher was Dr. King. Dr. King, wow. who she would sit on Sunday sermons and listen to, to show you how close to the source she is. Um, and her father is, you know, was a blues man as well. People don't realize like the legacy of Pop Staples. He grew up near Muddy Waters and all these guys, you know, down in the Delta. So that's, you know, she's sort of once, once removed from the source, both of incredibly inspirational, world changing civil rights leadership and world changing blues music right and we need these people to in, inspire us um because that's how we move forward that and then we need that now more than ever obviously because a lot of inspiration is sort of taking a back seat to aggravation right mm. you know you have half of the country you know or a third of the country that's being prompted to be mean and aggressive you know, a, a lot of these commercials I see for guys that are announcing congressional runs now are just posing with guns. Like there's no dialogue in the campaign commercial. It's just a dude with an AR-15, you know, and a bunch of ammo belts and crap on him and some like, you know, 90s tribal tattoos on his bicep, you know, and uh, that's it. It's just a guy shooting a gun for 10 minutes and then it's like, vote for me. You know, like, no, I'm not voting for you. We don't need murderers in Congress. Congress and the Senate is about legislation. You're there to write laws, dude. You want policy wonks. You want, you know, dudes who spent their time in libraries, not on shooting ranges, right? <laughs> There's no equivalency between the two. But the, as we discuss all the time, they've weaponized that mindset, toxic masculinity and that toxic aggressive sort of character traits have been labeled as, as patriotism. And it's not patriotism. It's the farthest thing from patriotism. The most unpatriotic thing this country has ever witnessed is the last five years. Allowing a con man who spent his career laundering money for first the Italian mob and then the Russian mob, you know, and spending his spare time assaulting women and cheating on his taxes, you know, and punching his son in the face. <laughs> He's like an abusive, awful human being that somehow a bunch of red state America thinks is the second coming of Christ. You know, it's the, it's the biggest con that's ever been perpetrated on a populace, you know, and who fell for it? The biggest marks in the world, the people of the United States, you know, are a third of those people, people who grew up on TV dinners and Budweiser and pickup trucks and Ronald Reagan waving flags, you know, the, the, the pumps were primed for this sort of thing to take place. But now we're, we're in the, uh, you know, we're it really in the, in the midst of it, because it's, it, it's going crazy, you know, it, and it, it's not getting any better. It, 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 so it's something we have to address. And a good way to do that is to start thinking about how we can come together. You know, any chance you get to be courteous to somebody, even if it's a guy, you know, rolling coal with a bunch of flags in the back of his pickup truck, who is branding himself in opposition to anything good and progressive in life, we have to start figuring out a way to take the high road. You know, and I don't mean using that behavior. I mean, any opportunity you get to be kind these days, take it because we're at a deficit of that. You know, like I pulled a snake out of the road yesterday that was crawling across the road. He was injured. He'd already been hit and it was traumatic, you know, but at least I was able to pick him up and put him in the grass, you know, and spend a few minutes with him. As I say all the time, that stuff might sound crazy to people, but, you know, I'm not going to walk on by when I see something suffering. You know, and, and, and these people are suffering. You know, we really need to redress and address the cultural sort of 
climate that has created these people, like that has allowed a Joe Manchin to eviscerate the climate legislation, you know, in this new infrastructure bill, because he's owned by oil companies and coal companies. He's the energy chair in the energy committee chair in the United States Senate. You know, he's there to represent <laughs> oil companies, not the people of West Virginia. I got sick in West Virginia drinking the water, taking one sip of water <laughs> to swallow a vitamin on a Crosby, Stills and Nash tour put me in urgent care. I was on my feet for three days. David Crosby had to call me in my hotel room every night and be like, how you doing, Noel? You know, can I bring you some soup? We're all going out to dinner. Crosby's great at that stuff, by the way. He's like a nurse. If you ever get sick, like Crosby is going to take care of you. He knows a ton about that kind of stuff, but uh, with things like that, but he, he's a caring guy, but you know, it's insane. You know, you should be able to drink the water in America. We shouldn't be uh, having to use bottled water uh, within the United States of America. I think the craziest thing for me, Nolan, you know, I've been trying to figure out this social experiment as as much as anybody else. But wouldn't you think after five years, most of these folks would have caught on to the con already? I mean, but they're already Russian cyber ops. They've been turned. So I, I guess they're beyond a point of return. Yeah, they've been turned and they're also like, it's been turned up to 11, right? They were turned, they were plugged in and now they're cranked up. Now they're being fed nothing but disinformation and they're getting it at such a, such a level. You have Tucker Carlson and you have Judge Jeanine Pirro and you have Tommy Lauren and it just goes on and on. And these little dweebs like Ben Shapiro out in LA, you know, Stephen Miller sitting behind it all, masterminding it, a 35-year-old from Santa Monica who grew up rich and Jewish, you know, who's the second coming of Goebbels. You know what I mean? He wants to kill anybody he doesn't view as pure blood. A guy who wouldn't have survived World War II, you know, the Germans would have murdered him like they did so many others, six million others to be specific, right? But now in Texas, they're trying to teach oppositions you know, let's teach the opposing theory to the Holocaust if you're going to teach the Holocaust, right? That's insanity. They're trying to rewrite history before your eyes. And there's a lot of people that aren't too hip to history in the first place, right? You know, it's like we always say, this didn't come out of a vacuum, right? You're always raised to like, put your hand over your heart and pledge allegiance to the flag and don't question America, you know, love it or leave it was the big tagline when I was a kid right? It's America, love it or leave it. You weren't supposed to question why we were in Vietnam, why we were committing atrocities in Central America for Central America, you know, for American imperialism. And, and the whole point of that stuff all the time was that we were fighting the Soviet Union by, by proxy. If we don't stop Manuel, Manuel Noriega, or if we don't stop the Sandinistas, right, they're going to be on our doorstep next, the Russians are, right? If we don't fight, you know, Ho Chi Minh, Next thing you know, it's going to be communist China taken, you know, and then we gave it all up for a guy who was owned by Putin, you know, who was literally pledging allegiance to Vladimir Putin, who sold out our FBI, who sold out our intelligence agencies. And people fell for it because you did it with a flag, with waving a flag. And, you know, I don't want to go off on this too much, but it's just insane. And it's yeah, it's been sold as a lifestyle brand. And when you think you're a good American, when you think you're a Christian, and it's okay for you to turn your back on immigrants crossing a border, when it's okay for you to like, turn in somebody who had an abortion who got assaulted, 
you know, or raped by a fucking family member and you tell them they got to have an abortion because that's what Jesus wants, you're out of your mind, right? right? You're part of a cult at that point. And there's millions of them now. There's millions of them, you know, and, and it's yeah. terrifying because there's people who think Marjorie Taylor Greene is telling the truth. She was a bomber. Dude, she bombed. She's the one who put that bomb on Capitol Hill. I guarantee you. Watch that video, right? She's wow. swinging her arm the same way as the bomber. Like how they have not pulled her in for questioning is beyond me. She had a tweet, and I'll let you speak in a minute. She had a tweet that I pointed out once where she was like, Nancy Pelosi, you let somebody plant bombs on January 5th on the Capitol. I'm like, how'd you know about the bombs on January 5th, Marjorie? <laughs> Because mm -hmm. we didn't know about him till January 6th. Like she basically told on herself on Twitter, how is she not being hauled before Congress or in, in front of the FBI? How is Steve Bannon not arrested on Thursday night? Why are we waiting till Tuesday afternoon to have a meeting, draft a letter, vote on it, then send the letter to the DOJ? And, you know, Merrick Garland could put it on the stack of papers of all the other things he hasn't done since January. Right. Well, and... My question about that whole thing and the, the new video that has emerged, it's like, why would MTG put herself in that situation? But then I thought about it this morning. If you compared MAGA to Al-Qaeda, like she's doing it for the cause. So, of course, they want a marked person, especially one in Congress. So if she does get arrested, she can go on TV and reset the narrative. It's, it's exactly what a con man would want as far as setting up bombs and stuff if Marjorie Taylor Greene is in fact the person that planted them. Right. Yeah. You know, my money is on, it was Marjorie Taylor Greene. Okay. Yeah. Like there's yeah. no, cause she was a QAnon freak. That's what she was a QTuber. She used to put up videos on Q on YouTube. That was how she came to prominence, so to speak. And then the QAnon people chased the democratic candidate out of North Georgia, the district she ran in. She moved into the district like a carpet bagger ran unopposed and as soon as she got into Congress, was just a lunatic from day one, right? A lunatic. And these people are crazy. You know, there's a great documentary on QAnon on HBO that people should watch, <laughs> how these guys react, you know? And it's like a father and son in the Philippines <laughs> that basically like hosted all this stuff and that some people think they are actually QAnon. I kind of believe they are, especially the son, because he sort of gave it up a few times in the documentary. And that kid, that whacked out son who's into like anime porn in Japan is running for Congress in Arizona, right? Where you already have <laughs> Paul Gosser and obviously Kristen Cinema, who's in Paris right now sipping champagne for a week on pharmaceutical companies dime to make more money <laughs> while the, you know, while the legislation isn't passed, let alone being back in Arizona, listening to what her constituents want, which is your job. You're not on vacation every time the Senate goes into recess. You're supposed to go home and do the work in your home office that's been piling up, finding out what issues and needs your citizens have. She goes on vacation. You know, mm -hmm. she was at the Boston Marathon last week. She didn't even run in it. She just went to hang out. Like, what are you doing? You're a senator. Man, if I was a senator, I would spend all my time in D.C. or in my home district, home, you know, home state. Right. That's all I would do. I'd be like, this is an important job for six or seven years of my life or four years, however long I'm there. This is all I'm going to do. You know, when I work on the VMAs, all I'm doing is the VMAs because it's a right. big deal to me. It's a big job. And if I don't want to be there and give 110 percent, there's 100 other guys that do. You know, mm -hmm. there's some kind of gigs where you have to give all of yourself to the gig. You don't really vacation a lot in those years.
And that, you know, representing people of the United States in our Congress is one of those gigs times a thousand because it's life and death for a lot of people. You're voting on things that now it is life and death. Climate legislation is life and death. Well, and what's really concerning, just looking forward to 2022, 2024 and beyond, it's like this MAGA movement has made every election a national one (laughs) where they're having to pay attention. One slight change. I mean, if you look at the the age of the average senator, they're going to be in their 70s. Like, I, I guess what I'm saying is it's not representative of the greater body. And that's that's a bigger concern for the long term health of the country. <laughs> so, Absolutely. You know, Chuck yeah. Grassley is 88 years old and he's seeking another term. <laughs> right. He right. wants another yeah, seven yeah. years or whatever. He's 88. He's already senile. You know, we've all seen his tweets. If you're looking for your pigeon, he's right here dead in the road. Like the guy's out of his mind. Yeah. And he, you know, he went full MAGA at Trump's last rally in Iowa. So it's just, you know, it's insane. You're right. It's the next generation that's going to save things, Jimmy. It's your generation. You know, it's AOC. It's this, these Eric Swalwell, the younger folks. As I always say, if you're old and you have some wisdom in politics, it's time to step aside and be somebody's chief of, chief of staff. Be their advisor. Tell them like you know what you've learned and how they can not make the same mistakes you, you have. It's definitely not time for the status quo. And a lot of what we're running into now, a lot of the frustration that are pe- people are feeling, you know, and Biden's doing a great job, but he's also like he wants to go back to the way things are. You don't go back to the way things are when you've unleashed something like Trumpism on this country. You know, we're in a war now uh, for the hearts and minds of American people. This is a nationalistic war that they're fighting every day while we're going to yoga class at the juice store, you know, and hoping it's going to go back to normal. It ain't, you know, Atlantic City never went back to Atlantic City after Trump had a bunch of casinos, right? Now you got empty pits in the ground where they had to raise the buildings and you got people sleeping on the boardwalks and stuff. Like you don't get to go back to normal after something like Trump. The guy tried to hang his vice president. He attacked the Capitol, you know, and sent thousands of people to do the same. Here's a point I want to make. And I said this in my car ran on Friday. And I don't think people are really like, you got to take a look back, step back and think about how insane this all was. And I think this one example does that. So on January 5th, after your boy Pence, you know, mm-hmm. came home from Indiana and spoke with Dan Quayle and mother and whoever else, he <laughs> to, you know, about his desire to, to uh, accede to Trump's wishes and not certify the election results, he finally figured out he couldn't do it. He has a meeting with Trump in his in the Oval Office. And Trump's like, yeah, I really need you to do this. It's fine. You can do it, blah, blah, blah. And Pence is like, sorry, dude, I can't do it. You know, I talked to Dan Quayle. I want to do it. There's just no way I can really do it constitutionally. You know, and Trump's like, well, then I can't be your friend anymore if you can't do it. That's not a six-year-old being a baby. That's a mob boss saying, you don't get my protection right? If you don't do it, then I can't guarantee you what's going to happen to you. <laughs> you know, I can't mm. offer you protection anymore. That's a mob boss threat. That's what Trump was doing, right? So he leaves the office. Mike Pence does, goes to another meeting. Trump has Jason Miller put out a press release saying the president and the vice president just had a meeting and they're both on the same page that he doesn't have to certify the election results. Right. And Pence's people see this and they're like, what the hell are you talking about? That is not what we just said. Retract it right away. 
And the White House is like, F you, we're not gonna. That's the second mob tactic, right? They're trying to stiff arm them and publicly get ahead of the story, right? It's like two companies have a negotiation about a merger or something, and one of them leaks a press release like, oh, we've come to an agreement. You're trying to put public pressure on somebody that hopefully he'll just acquiesce because now the public you know, knows about it. So they were hoping like the MAGA hordes were going to think that Pence was on the same page. And also it was priming them to be angry when they found out he wasn't on the same page the next day. Mm. You see mm-hmm. what I mean? It was adding fuel to the rage that sent them up there to hang the guy. And that was also part of the message, right? And the third thing they did is then they sent Giuliani to try and visit Pence at the Naval Observatory, which is where the vice president lives. It's his residence, you know, while he's in office. So they wanted to send Giuliani up there at 9.30 at night to visit Pence, who's probably in bed, you know, with his sleep cap on at 8.30 next to mother having a warm glass of milk. You know what I mean? Looking at like, you know, TikTok videos of of young men in their abs, you know? Like he's probably not ready to like meet, you know, Rudy Giuliani, who's basically Trump's consigliere. And like, you know, Giuliani's going to go in there with his pinky rings and his scotch breath and be like, hey, bro, boss needs you to do this favor. It'd be in your best interest to do this, capiche? Right. That was the final like salvo. They were trying to one last chance. You know, I can't guarantee you what's going to happen tomorrow, but you better play boss, you know, or play, play ball with the boss. And thankfully, right. Pence's age, AIDS protected him, you know, and they, they wouldn't let Rudy Giuliani anywhere near him that night, you know. And that's probably saved the country, literally. You know, I'm not saying Pence is a hero, but somebody on his staff was smart enough to know what was going on. And it'd be nice to hear from those people now. That's where you could really get some people that that could, you know, blow the whistle. And none of them are doing it. And we all know what happened the next day, right? They tried to hang Pence. He wouldn't even get in the limo that was about to leave when the Capitol was being attacked because he was so freaked out and scared, you know? Like, so... And then now, of course, he's full MAGA again and, and, and back to stroking the president's ego every chance he gets, you know, so and that shows you the cultism of this thing. He owns this party now. He owns these people. Right. And how we really change this is we have to change the culture. We have to change the hearts and minds of these folks, as I keep saying. And how do we do that as Democrats, as progressive people? We do it through kindness. In in recovery, there's a saying, it's a program of attraction, not promotion, right? We somehow have to live our lives. We're living the right way, not in anger, not in resentment, not in exclusivity to other races and and, and, and immigrants and stuff becomes more attractive to more and more people, you know, because people are going to burn out. That's the other thing with rage is it tires you. It's like a big fire. It flames out after a while. You can't keep feeding it oxygen. And right now it's at a critical mass because it's being fed, as I said, by Fox News and these corporations with endless amounts of money. And then guys like the Koch brothers pulling the strings behind the scenes. And then also Democrats thinking, well, if we don't have Manchin, it's just going to be a Republican. So we might as well leave him in there. No, you shouldn't do that. You should get rid of the guy. He's a thief. He's been ripping off your home state for 20, 30 years as a governor you know, and as a secretary of state before that, he's a crook, you know, he's in there to make money off the backs of very impoverished people. You know, there's not many people that grow up and say, I want to go live in West Virginia. <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. It, it, it's, it can be a pretty gruesomely 
sad place, you know, with a ton of problems that need compassion and need a senator that's going to, you know, turn it around. So don't keep falling for this. Well, the lesser of two evils approach. That's business as usual. You know, West Virginia needs its equivalent of AOC. It needs a progressive minded person to say, hey, you don't need to give your kid Mountain Dew. You don't need to take Oxycontin because you got injured like digging up coal for 15 years. That's not the only job, you know, that, that's not all you can strive for. And, and it, it was a state of wondrous natural beauty. Mm-hmm. You know, it was one of the most beautiful states in the country. And, and it, you go there now and it's like strip mining. They cut off the tops of the mountains for coal. And so it'll make you cry driving mm-hmm. through there now. So, you know, that's the kind of approach I think we need to start taking. You know, that's how we're going to change this place. It's attraction, not promotion. We got to be so nice. And so not nice, like in terms of pushovers, but we have to, we have to come up with something that's, that can counter the onslaught of negativity you're getting from the right, you know, and I don't really know what that is yet. I just know we need it. Yeah. I think, you know, part of my holistic problem solving, you know, if I could implement something right now would be to destigmatize mental health. <laughs> you know, we had a mental health problem before the pandemic and before Trump became president. And the best example of mental health and it breaking people down was when Andrew Luck retired. You know, he retired in the middle of a game with fans there at Lucas Oil Stadium and they booed him off the field in part because they paid for season tickets and they were expecting to see him. But he had $80 million in the bank. He was Stanford educated and, you know, was 29 years old. Even with all of his injuries, he still had his entire life ahead of him, but he was broken. And it's okay to admit that you are broken if you are and to reach out for help. That's, that's how it gets better is you admit that you have a problem. Absolutely. And there's no shame in it. You know, it's just like any other, you know, thing. I, I have mental health issues. I'm an addiction. Addiction is a mental health issue more than anything else. You know, when I was in rehab, I'll share a story with you, Jimmy. When I was in rehab, I went to rehab at NIH, the National Institutes of Health. And I was part of this protocol where they were like trying to do this. You know, they were seeing if an experimental drug was going to help people with with alcoholism and addiction, you know, and in reality, they were introducing you to the 12 steps, which is what's really going to help you, you know, which is sort of like a spiritual approach, which addresses sort of mental health. And uh, so anyway, at one point, like I was there about two weeks and a young man killed himself in front of me, Mm -hmm. He jumped to his death and uh, was mortally wounded right in front of me and died. And uh, It was traumatic and they pulled us back inside like our little lockdown ward. And one of the other people, other, you know, patients was like, Hey, I want to go have a cigarette now. And they were like, you can't go like the hospitals on lockdown. Right. Cause this kid had just killed himself. Mm -hmm. And the person goes, and no, I said, I go, yeah, but that was a mental health ward that he was on. And they looked at me and they're like, what kind of ward do you think you're on? (laughs) You know, like, what do you think this is? You know, what is, what do you think addiction is? It's mental health, you know, and that's where they, where they broke the genetic code, where they developed AZT that, you know, it's where Dr. Fauci worked. They, they treat it like science, you know, you study fatal diseases and look for an approach and, and mental, you know, mental illness is a fatal disease, you know, and it's one of these things that's like addiction. It comes out in these other ways that are hard to measure, Right. You don't see the person as sick. You see them as doing this crazy stuff. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a perfect example. That person is mentally ill. You know, there's nothing healthy about her. And unfortunately, she's at a place where she can do real damage to this country. 
Trump was mentally ill. That's why I always talk about his addictions. It's I don't care that he actually did, snorted Adderall. If you could have snorted that and did your job, fine, right? But he had the isms underneath addiction, the self-centeredness, the rage, all these other toxic emotions, things we call character defects in recovery. That stuff will eat you alive and it'll destroy the lives of those around you, right? And we have to stop stigmatizing mental health. Andrew Luck's a hero for doing that. When you throw up a white flag and surrender, it's not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of asking for help. You want to live to fight another day, right? When you're outnumbered and whooped, sometimes the best thing you can do is stick your hand up and say, I need help. That's what mm -hmm. saved me from alcoholism was finally saying, I need help. You can't beat things alone. And, and you're right. We're in a place now where the whole country has PTSD. We all went through trauma last year, whether you think you did or you didn't. That was some very traumatic stuff, okay? The whole country shut down. 700,000 people have died so far. That in itself is mind-boggling, and you can see how we're basically in collective amnesia about that, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody even mentions that. If, if they had died in another way, you know, like if it's coming up on Halloween, right? If Jason was out there with a machete killing 700,000 people, people wouldn't be leaving their houses still, right? Right? If you were like, oh, that guy might get you if you go into CVS, he might yeah. pop out behind the nail polish with a machete and cut your head off, you wouldn't be going into CVS, right? But people are doing it now without masks. And it's the same equivalency. Somebody can cough in the next aisle now and you can get a fatal disease that'll make you die a horrible death. But like somehow it's not registering in the in the proper context, you know, and uh, it needs to because we need to heal from that trauma. You know, we need like Oprah Winfrey or somebody, you know, we need somebody who's not ashamed to address these deeper issues to like sit down, y'all sit right. down as a nation and come together and heal, which is what we ultimately need. Like somehow we're going to have to listen to the other side if we can get them stabilized enough, because they're so deep in their <laughs> mental illness. And, and by the way, that's what these people are preying on. You know, I saw a rally in New York City yesterday in Times Square. It was attacking the media. It was in front of the Times Square offices, and it was a bunch of people screaming, and they were clearly mentally ill, right? Putin and all these guys can find these guys. That's what Facebook is exploiting. And they're weaponizing mental illness to achieve cynical political results. And that's something we've never dealt with in this country, right? Hitler, you know, did that to the Germans. There's other crazy ass leaders throughout history who have done this, but we've never quite had it on the scale we have it now being married with, you know, married like with social media. You know, that that's what's really scary is that people can tap into this 24/7. That mental illness can make you get up at 3 in the morning and start looking at QAnon videos on YouTube. Right. So you're in this like vacuum without any outside help, without anybody coming into mom's basement and saying, hey, put that down. Right. So then these people that are already aggrieved and mentally ill are like, well, I got a gun. I can be a hero. Let me go hurt somebody like we saw in England last week. Somebody stabbed a politician to death. Stuff is getting crazy. And I believe we're going to have like sort of a guerrilla, a guerrilla war on our hands in America in the next few years. You know, those guys that bombed the, the Boston Marathon, right? right. Sarnov brothers. There's going to be a thousand of those guys. God forbid, but we have the potential for that. 
And people are trying to warn you, wake up to this. You know, it's what I'm always saying. What happens to the 15 year olds that believe this stuff? And mental illness happens to teenagers a lot. That's one of the most vulnerable, tough times in your life. What's happened to the mentally ill teenagers now that are being raised in homes, listening to Fox News and OAN and daddy's a big QAnon nut? You know, when you're already kind of like, we'll do anything as 17, 18 year old adolescent, right? It's already a dangerous time that makes you prone to sort of overreaction, risk taking, right? But now it's not like, you know, jumping off the cliff at the quarry after a bunch of beers. Now it's like, I'm going to run my car into a crowd of people as we saw in Charlottesville. You know, that was a young man, young white man, full of rage and mental illness. I'm not excusing his actions. He's a monster, but we're creating monsters. And you're absolutely right. We have to change it at a soul level, at a mental health level, you know? Well, and the other problem too, that really concerns me is for in America for a long time, we've had these social media stars, right? People that are famous for the mere fact of being famous. And I think that's part of the attraction is they're going to get attention. And I don't know uh, if if you watch 60 Minutes this week, they did a piece on like facial recognition technology and how people can look exactly like the person. It's going to be even more difficult to decipher between stuff. I mean, it was difficult for me. I mean, it looked like the guy. It looked like Tom Cruise playing guitar or whatever, man. Like they're getting better at this technology. That's what's more concerning. It's excellent point, Jimmy. It's yeah. insane. I see that every every time I log into Twitter. I mean, uh, Instagram. You know, they have the movies at the top of the page or the videos or whatever. Uh-huh. I see that Tom Cruise thing, and it freaks me out. And I'm like, I yeah. make that go away. I don't want to see that anymore. That is so dangerous. Because like, what if Putin gets one of those videos and puts Trump's face on there? And he's like, take to the streets right now. Right. Your neighbor is not on my side. You need to take them out in the interest of MAGA in America. Like that is so dangerous. And the Russians will exploit that or any of our enemies. You know, we don't need the Russians. It could be, it could be (laughs) Steve Bannon, anybody who wants to do bad thing. You know, Stephen Miller, all these nutbags, right? Michael Flynn, these guys can use that technology to their advantage and they've already got this army they're building it's terrifying we're in terrifying times you had kim kardashian hosted snl and i know i guess everybody loved her and stuff but that's somebody who's famous for just being on social media first time i ever saw her she was following us around on the field at the super bowl after the saints win and we're shooting videos and i'm like who is this chick that keeps following us around why is she here And they're like, oh, that's Reggie Bush's girlfriend. You know, she's Kim Kardashian. She made a sex tape. And I was like, well, whatever. (laughs) And then, you know, this was, uh, you know, 10 years ago or more or whatever. And now she's like a billionaire. And so it is scary. It's it's insane. But at the same time, we can spread love. We can spread humor. You know, we can spread good things. And if you have a platform, you, you need to be punching up, right? You need to be inspiring people making jokes about like groups of people that already have a tougher road than you isn't heroism. It's not edginess. It's just kind of unhelpful at this point, you know, and that's all I'll say on that. I think people can read between the lines of that (laughs) kind of stuff, but you know, if you're taking up a bunch of the bandwidth at the time where we're in a struggle saving the planet with climate change, where we have a fascist party trying to overtake America you don't go after people that are just trying to live their lives, you know, and be themselves. And 
you can always say, well, I'm not really going after them. I'm just trying to show the hypocrisy or whatever. Why are you even talking about it? Why are you wasting such a precious like gift you've been given with such a platform? And, you know, it, there, there's a lot of money to be made in controversy. The most popular comedians that sell stuff out are always the racist ones. It's the white dudes, the Joe Rogan bros that, that perform in Texas and everywhere. The rapey kind of misogynistic assholes sell out first. That low-hanging fruit has become the cultural currency of our time. Why is Joe Rogan having Alex Jones on his show? I'll take Joe Rogan over to Sandy Hook, you know, let him meet some of the parents. You know, it's not a joke. You don't give a platform to somebody like that. That's not free speech and edginess. That's insane. But, you know, it, it'll get you clicks. Clicks will get you money. and Money will get you a big house. You don't need that big of a house. Somebody in my town had a $2 million wedding last night, bro. And they had Coldplay play the wedding. <laughs> Well, you know, they could have done better in that way, you know. Exactly. I know. (laughs) Coldplay. All that money and you hire Coldplay. But anyway, uh, (laughs) not not the best uh, hire there. But you know what you're gonna do. Whatever. That's that's who (laughs) Coldplay are like a Hamptons band, essentially. You know, the guy lives. And I've done a bunch of gigs with them. They're nice guys, you know. But um, anyway, uh, so we were talking about the NFL. Let's get into the NFL, Jimmy. That's your area of expertise. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry about your boy John Rudin or Gruden or whatever the hell his name is. Gruden's having a hell of a week, man. Um, seven years worth of emails spewing hate off, off the field. And I'll tell you something. Um, they they create mediocre white men. They don't get much more mediocre than John Gruden. The fact that, you know, the apex of his fame and everything that he's known for, winning a Super Bowl in 2001 with the Buccaneers, it was Tony Dungy who built that team, okay? And then Tony came here to Indianapolis and gave us a championship. So, his best success was off the work of, of others. And his father was a coach at Notre Dame. He had a birthright, a paved road into coaching. And it shows, too, that, that Trump's impunity of being an asshole has permeated into corporate America, where a privileged coach, one of 32 guys that gets to coach an NFL team, gets to spew that shit and still have a job for eight years. You know, like that's, and in between the time of coaching, he was on Monday Night Football with a national audience. So, you know, it's it's another example of the mediocre white man making a ton of money because it works. And the, and the NFL had influence every time that he was hired. You don't think they know the kind of person he is before they put him on ESPN? They, they knew everything. Of course. So, of course that's they. that's my rant on Gruden. He's a mediocre white man who will probably be hired by Fox News or OAN within a matter of weeks or run for Congress. So that, that'll be fun that, to watch. That's what I said. He'll run for Congress. You know, <laughs> and he got $90 million in his last coaching contract, right? With the Raiders or something ridiculous. 60 like that. million of it is still on the table. I don't know if he'll get that, but he yeah, got so like get the 30. first three years. Right. Yeah. So he got 30 million bucks. He's been to the playoff, what, five times since he was in the Super Bowl or something ridiculous? This like decade. That. Yeah. <laughs> if you spread it out, like, you know, it depends on how you frame it, too. You know, it's like, I made the playoffs two of the last eight years. Well, the last six, you haven't, you know? <laughs> so, yeah, it's a business, man, like anything else. You know, as long as the owners keep making money, as long as the TV contracts keep getting signed and advertisements keep getting made. I I, I had a joke about our uh, the Pacers arena. It got renamed uh, the GameBridge Fieldhouse. And there's a there's a catwalk that connects the arena to the parking garage. 
And I'm curious if it's going to be called the Gaines Bridge Bridge. Like that, we're at that point in America where we're going we're gonna to have to sponsor landmarks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you exactly. know? Exactly. It's, um, we, we've sold everything in America. Yeah, well, that's, it's a business. I always <laughs> tell people, America is a business. You think it's a land of the free. It's a business. And, and it's exploited more and more by corporate interests. You know, the, the difference between the haves and the have-nots has never been greater in the history of humankind. We're in, we're sailing into uncharted waters and it's scary, but you know, the NFL, it's like, there's all the, it is, it's very much a business. I, you know, I did Super Bowl halftime shows for almost 15 years and uh, NFL is gangsta. You know, it's not, <laughs> it, it's not my favorite organization. There are a bunch of thugs, you know, Roger Goodell is a thug and uh, which is funny because like Gruden went after Goodell and it's like, it's just insane. You know what I mean? Because Goodell is not the polar opposite of Gruden's speak. You know what I mean? Like Gruden isn't the only coach who talks like that in the NFL. I promise you that. And there's more subtle versions too, you know, and I saw it. I remember I did an, a Super Bowl with the Seahawks and the Patriots, right? I don't know how many years ago, maybe five, six years ago or something. And Lenny Kravitz was performing uh, he was like the special guest with whoever the headliner was like Katy Perry or somebody. And I remember being in the hallway. Cause you, you line up in the hallway before the halftime show, like 10 minutes before, you know, the second quarter ends, you got to get down there. Cause when it's halftime, you run out, you build the field in five minutes and then you got like six minutes to perform and then you're out of there. Right. Mm -hmm. It's very hardcore, like military type precision that you mm -hmm. practice for like crazy. Mm -hmm. So we're lined up in the hallway waiting to go on and the team, you know, we're on the Seahawks side and the, the Seahawks come off and they're walking down the hallway and Marshawn Lynch sees me, not me, he doesn't know who I am, but he sees Lenny Kravitz. <laughs> I'm standing next to Lenny Kravitz and he's like, oh my God, Lenny Kravitz, my man, what the, you know, he just freaked <laughs> out. He's seeing Lenny Kravitz, you know, and it was so awesome. He was so joyful, like a kid, you know, he's like, oh man, you know, oh shit, it's Lenny Kravitz, you know. And I took a picture of the two of them, which is classic. It's one of my favorite photos because I was like, here, get over there. You want a picture? And uh, I, it's on my, my uh, Instagram if you do a deep dive. But uh, wonderful. You know, I just love the energy of Marshawn Lynch. <laughs> I love how he wasn't playing at media day and he would just read this prepared statement because he knows what the game is. You yeah. know, he understands the racism in that league. So anyway, that same game at the end of the you know fourth quarter, the Seahawks take it up to the one yard line. They're about to win the Super Bowl. They got mm -hmm. a first down, right? So it's just like a done deal. We're all backstage like, yes, the Patriots are going to lose, you know, because I hate the Patriots. I'm a Giants fan, you know, <laughs> and the best Super Bowl I ever saw was in Phoenix, right? When, when the Giants so gloriously beat the Patriots. And then again, in your, uh, in your Lucas oil stadium in mm. 2012 or whatever the giants won. So, but most of the time the Patriots win, let's be honest, you know, and, and I was sick of everybody who works on the Super Bowl is sick of watching the Patriots win because their fans are just killjoys. You know, they're not good sportsmen about it. They're just no. jerks. So you're just getting ready for like in your face, Brady is the best man. You know, like, <laughs> so you're like, oh God, here we go again. But then you're like, oh, we got a chance, right? They're on the one yard line. They got a first down. So what is that four attempts they got to get across the goal line, you know, mm -hmm. and they got Marshawn Lynch on their team. Like this is a done deal. 
what happens, right? The ball is snapped. Russell Wilson passes the ball and it gets intercepted by a Patriots defensive player, right? And we're like, oh my God, why did he just throw the ball? I later learned because I talked to some people about it because everybody was shocked, right? I mean, you had four chances to get across the goal line. You could have gotten it across the goal line at that point, Jimmy. Yeah. I could have gotten it. You know what I mean? Like a few feet, let alone Marshawn Lynch, the guy who's literally the best in the world at doing that. Yeah. Nickname beast mode, right? Right. right? Like you hand the ball to that guy to win the Super Bowl, he's getting that touchdown. (laughs) You know, like it was like a gift from the gods, and you ignore him and give it to Russell Wilson to pass. You put that much risk into the situation. And it gets intercepted. Why? Because they prepared for that play. Okay. Because Belichick knew that if it came down to that and Pete Carroll had to make that choice, he was going to go with Russell Wilson because they wanted Russell Wilson to be the MVP. They wanted Russell Wilson, who's also African-American, but, but more of a like corporate kind of polished speaker, as opposed to Marshawn Lynch, who they, they sort of tag as ghetto and he's not, you know, he's not playing along. He's not a company man, so to speak. Right. And they didn't want Marshawn Lynch to be the MVP of that game. Right. Because mm-hmm. they didn't know what he was going to say at the big celebration after and stuff. So it was a safer bet from a corporate money making standpoint to let Russell Wilson have it, exclude Marshawn Lynch. And then you'd have this polished, you know, they're the face of the team kind of like they're, mm-hmm. you know, speaking politely to the press afterwards right so that's why they did it that's the only reason belichick had prepared for that because he knew psychologically what the other nfl coach was going to have to do in that situation what his first priority was going to be because otherwise you wouldn't even prepare for that right you think common sense is like oh if they're if they have the ball at the one yard line on a first down they're giving it to marshawn lynch well and to connect it back to goodell you don't think that Belichick and Goodell know each other <laughs> they've been you know in communication with one another with the Patriots being suspended and ha- having tampering charges and different things all of those guys are interconnected with each other they communicate all the time and, I'm not saying that they communicated that beforehand but they know how the culture works right that's my point yeah, right, right instinctually right. knew like here's what how it's going to yeah. play out in the NFL if you're sure. in that position you're giving it to Russell Wilson because you want him to make one final pass and be the MVP and blah 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 so here's yeah. what happened though so we're st- I'm standing in the VOM which is the hallway you know right. the VOM are these little like hallways that lead onto the field I'm standing in the VOM watching this on the monitor we see the interception we're like oh my god how did they throw the ball like how did that happen Marshawn Lynch when the game ended was the first off the field he's carrying his helmet and he goes y'all motherfuckers could have won but you didn't want to give me the ball y'all motherfuckers could have won but you didn't want to give me the ball in complete disgust he knew exactly what had happened he -hmm. knew why they didn't give him the ball and the opportunity to live his greatness right He's a guy who was born for that play and he didn't get to live it out. He didn't get to do that. He didn't get to like achieve and he should have. And the only reason he didn't was the subtle cultural sort of racism that permeates the NFL. And he knew it. You ain't going to bullshit that guy. He's not dumb. You know, he went to UC Berkeley, like the guy, mm-hmm. I, I believe he, he you know, he's That's not right. an idiot. He's just not what you think is culturally appropriate for what you're trying to sell in the NFL. Right. So yeah. 
And, and it just the way he looked at it, he wasn't even saying it to anybody in particular. He was just saying it out loud. Like, here I am once again, not getting to be who I'm supposed to be, basically, you know, because I'm a black man that you're afraid of. Because that's what it really came down to. They're afraid of Marshawn Lynch and sort of what he represents. It's that fear, you know, that subtle racism and that fear. And it was tragic. I mean, it wasn't as tragic as the more overt acts of racism that cost, you know, African-American men and women their lives every day. But it was an example of that. It, it robbed mm -hmm. us all of an exciting moment. And it also let the, the crown prince MAGA boy, you know, <laughs> yeah. you know um, whatever the hell his name is, Brady, win yeah. yet another Super Bowl and go kiss his Brazilian supermodel wife. And you know what I mean? Yeah. So it was just a bummer moment. And it, it, I thought of it again this week when I heard about Roger Goodell, because I'm like, you don't even know how, how, yeah. how racism permeates and how many layers of it there are in the NFL, you know? I don't know if you saw it. I tweeted it out. Uh, the AP reported that the NFL <laughs> did an independent investigation of its servers and found no other evidence of, you know, misogyny and, and other stuff. It's like, okay, so your organization looked into what you were doing and you're doing okay. That's what you're yeah, saying. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like um, it's been going on. It's just brought to light now. That's that's the difference. Exactly. So. And you know what? There's a little bit of progress. It's good that he got fired. He knew Monday night when that story broke, he was done, you know, and he immediately like resigned. So at least there's progress there because 10 years ago, the guy would have fought it and tried to hang on to his job. But uh, he'll be at Mar-a-Lago for Christmas. But enough of that, idiot. You know, what did what, <laughs> you do in nature this week, Jimmy? Nature this week? Um, well, it actually got cold because uh, it's mid-October for Indiana. Uh, so I got the last bit of sun that I could and just kind of soaked up the sun this week to try to keep the tan. Uh, that's that's the one benefit of global warming, if you can call it one. It is warmer into the fall, but we don't want that. I get it, man. Hey, I'm a tan junkie, man. I get my energy <laughs> from the sun. N nothing drives me more crazy than every week I do these uh, car rants. And people yeah. go, dude, wear sunblock. Get out of my face. You know what I mean? Don't <laughs> tell me what to wear. Don't tell me to put a bunch of chemicals on my face. I go to the dermatologist. I know where I'm at with that stuff. <laughs> you know, it's also the filter. It's the way it looks when I'm sitting there in my car. Like these computer phones always make me look orange and stuff, you know, but I'm like, shut up, you know? But anyway, that's my own venting. So yeah, it's same thing here. It's been nice this week. I'm going to go get out in nature today. That's I'm going to go to a meeting after this because, you know, recovery is, 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 is what allows me to do all these other things. You know, it's the most important thing in my life is trying to help somebody else stay sober and live one day at a time. And uh, here's my Jerry Garcia band t-shirt for Ron Tut, RIP Ron go, Tut. And uh, I'm really looking forward to this show, Jimmy. I'm doing a lot of preparation for my show later today. Wall Street Theater is awesome. Norwalk is a great town. It's got a marina and everything and a Part of the town is called South Norwalk. It's got all these restaurants and bars and stuff. It's a great time. So come on out if you're listening. November 18th, right before the Thanksgiving holiday, really good time. We'll kick off the holiday celebration. Going to have a great show. So Thursday night, November 18th, some of you guys have been buying tickets. I appreciate it. I loved meeting you guys at Annapolis at the Rams head. You know, people lined up, Jimmy, they were big fans of the podcast. A lot of them mentioned you and your hair. And they're like, what's the deal with Jimmy's hair? And I'm like, nobody knows, bro. 
Neither do I. Between <laughs> Jimmy and God. But uh, no, they were great. Somebody gave me a mask. I wish I knew her name or who she was on Twitter, but she gave me a really cool mask with a really funny, you know, said, I say F a lot, but F was spelled out, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it was just really cool. So thank you for that. Thanks for all the people that come. And I look forward to meeting you in November. So come on out, man. Wall Street Theater, November 18th. I'm going to let you say goodbye in a second, Jimmy. I want to tell them one more story too. Sure. You know, last week it was John Lennon's birthday and Jackson Brown's birthday when we taped on uh, Saturday. And, uh, you know, Jackson Brown is like a mentor to me and I got to be his road manager. I met him when I was a teenager and I've been listening to him since I was a kid. And then as a, you know, in my thirties, I got to be a road manager and travel the world with him and uh, his amazing crew and band. You know, that's how I really learned about touring and, Crosby, Stills, and Nash came from that. You know, they had the same management at the time. But uh, we were in Liverpool on my first tour in in UK, you know, in England and, and in Europe. My first summer on the road with a band, I get a text at night from Jackson. And he's like, hey, Noel, I want you to take down this number and call this guy. I want you to take the band in the morning, go meet this guy. He's going to give you a private tour of John Lennon's boyhood home. <laughs> and I'm like wow. what okay boss you know and I call this guy in the morning and we I get the band and we head over on the tour bus to to Mendips which is where John Lennon lived with his aunt Mimi you know as a kid and this guy brings us in there and there's nobody else there it's just mm -hmm. us and we get to like go in his bedroom and see his old guitar up on the wall you know and a picture of like Bridget Bardot or somebody that he had you know you just saw this like teenager's modest little room the house is actually nice they had borders they were kind of middle class as opposed to like Paul McCartney and stuff and George Harrison who grew up a little poorer Lennon kind of you know because his mom died when he was a kid he lived with his, his aunt and uncle and they, they were kind of a little well off in terms of Liverpool which isn't <laughs> isn't really well off you know it's a very working class at the time Liverpool and, and Manchester but it's a pretty beautiful property is my point and the real strawberry fields was behind the wow. yard and like there's a foyer where you know you come in the front door we came in the back door through the kitchen which I think is what they always used you know but there's a little front door foyer and that's where Lennon and McCartney first sang together for the first time because it had a natural reverb and they would hear their harmonies and that's where they first worked out their harmonies and you're sitting in this small space thinking of these two teenagers you know, who met when they were 14 or 15 and started singing together and, and seeing how two voices worked together and created a sound that was bigger than the both of them, right? And then that sound became bigger than Liverpool. And then it became bigger than England, right? And then it permeated the whole world and inspired a thousand other bands. And, and it created a spirit. And you never know where that magic comes from, right? These were basically a couple of poor kids in Liverpool, England, post-World War II, that got turned on, you know, by American music. That was a gift from our Black culture. Rock and roll was invented by Black people. It came out of the blues, right? Elvis made it popular, but it was a gift to the world from a community that we've only mistreated, right? And that it inspires these two kids all the way across the ocean. And then they create this sound that people are still in love with today. Right. People are still waiting for the next Beatles documentary. And my point isn't about the popularity or the money involved. It's about you never know where inspiration will lead and you never know who else will get inspired by that sound you're making.
And harmony is more powerful than a single voice, right? The Beatles did more than Elvis did because there was a bunch of them singing together, you know, or three of them, at least four in the band, obviously three whose voices blended together. First time I worked with Crosby, Stills and Nash, we were sitting in a room at the Songwriters Hall of Fame, which is this great show I do. And we were sitting in this little like holding area, green room. It was in a hotel and Crosby, Nash and Stills were, were sitting there and James Taylor walked in who was going to perform with them. And they're like, hey, you want to warm up? And they're like, sure. Right. And they all started singing together in this little room, you know, and I'm sitting with my colleagues, right? And my friend, one of my best friends, Tanya, who I've worked with for 25 years, you know, is this wonderful black lady. And she looks at me and she goes, no, come here. Cause she hears them singing, right? She goes, I don't know who the fuck these guys are, but that's from God right there. Mm. That's from God. That's a gift, right? Cause the harmony got to her. She felt it in her heart. You didn't need to know the history of those guys. You didn't need to know the music. You hear it right away and you react to it. That's mm. what the Beatles did why they're beloved you go anywhere in the world and put that on and somebody's going to smile and feel good because it's something bigger than us and that's what we need to get back to right our commonality our harmony you know our blending our voices together to make something bigger than ourselves that's what's going to save us okay jimmy that's what you got to focus on brother all right i will you can call me a dreamer but i'm not the only one there you go. All right. So that's episode 33, folks, of the Noel Castler podcast. You can find Jimmy. Tell them where you can find him, Jimmy. JBK on air, Twitter and Instagram, and jbkonair.com. There you go. You can find me at noelcastler.com, at Castler Noel Twitter, and anywhere else, and most certainly at the Wall Street Theater on November 18th in Norwalk, Connecticut. Until next week, be well. We love you all. Peace.